Hello and welcome to Cinemakers. This is episode 40, The Dark Knight, directed by Christopher Nolan, and I am Christopher Podcasts. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski, and I wrote out the intro, and you changed the intro. You know, it's called improv, bitch. I'm an actor. I was expecting more Batman voices, but I was the only one this time. Did we tell you, Chris, that Mike and I came up? You actually might have been on the episode when we came up with it on Watch the Throne. I do feel like a little weird in that, like, every podcast that we record references other podcasts that we record, and it almost feels like you have to listen to everything if you want to keep up with everything. It's a connected universe. It's all connected. It is the CCU. But we came up with a name for all of our games at the end of the Watch of Throne episodes called Unfortunate Improv. Was that you? It might have been. I don't remember. I keep forgetting it, but now I, I wrote it down, so now I have it burned into my brain. But it's just like, yeah, it's improv, but like nobody wants yeah, it. That sounds really familiar. <laughs> but yeah, so that's, you know, you unfortunately improved the intro that I so delicately wrote. But here we are, The Dark Knight. It's the one that everyone was waiting for. Arguably the reason, not that we did this, but, like, the one, like, Letterboxd loves this movie. Like, Letterboxd loves Nolan, but Letterboxd loves this movie. Okay, real quick, I know that the games come at the end, but where does this fall on the IMDb Top 200? Or 250, whatever. Oh, Top 10. You want to take a guess as to what number it actually is? Oh, God, I, I think it keeps going up. I'm going to say Top 5? 4. It's it's 3. It's Shawshank Redemption, The Godfather, The Dark Knight, The Godfather Part 2, Pulp Fiction. Now, that list is stupid in a lot of ways to begin with, but it is extremely stupid in the way of the Dark Knight. Oh, yeah. I mean, this movie was a phenomenon, like it or not. This is like my dad's second favorite movie next to Terminator 2, just to give you an idea. This was a seismic event when this came out. I mean, like the Joker says, this changed things forever. You know, there was kind of no going back after this. Um, I happen to love this movie. I think the more I watch it, but that's not to say I think it's a perfect film. You know, I'm definitely excited that we're, we're finally here. There's always, Joey, I always feel like there's one movie that the rest of the podcast sort of like gravitates around like hovers around like i know for for watch the throne it's it's fury road and i and i feel like for this podcast yeah it's it's certainly the dark knight was this did i get did i see it right that you ranked this as your favorite nolan movie through the first six yeah, I did actually. Yeah, it took it took the lead. It did actually. I mean, who knows what, by the end of this where it's going to stay? But for now, I was even surprised myself because I thought Batman Begins was my favorite Batman movie in general, and it turns out at the moment this is my favorite. So, so what I think is real weird, and I know that we're sort of already all over the place here, but this movie in my list of favorite movies, just favorite movies, period, is like really high, like top, not number three, you know, not IMDb stupidness, but it's number. 10, I think, right now, when I'm in the process of redoing this. But what's weird is that, like, it's number four for Christopher Nolan for me. Like, on my grand list, it's my number one Nolan. But in terms of, I think, like, what his quote-unquote best movies are, I think this is, like, number four. I also don't know how I do these lists. And I don't understand my own processes for this. But I think, and this doesn't make any sense, really, Batman Begins is a better movie than this. But I think this is more fun. I also think it's a little bit, like Chris is going to talk about, I'm sure, it's a little bit bloated. But I downgraded it on Letterboxd from five stars to four and a half stars because we're watching so many of these good movies in a row. Christopher Nolan's made like basically since, you know, we got Memento, which is awesome. We got Batman Begins, which is awesome. We got Prestige, which is awesome. We got this movie. I'm like, man, like these are all so good and I don't want to give them all five stars even though they maybe deserve it. And then that last like 30 seconds where Gordon's talking to his kid and the score kicks in and I'm like, oh my God, like that is like, it just, it's the perfect way to end on it. And even though this movie has its flaws and even though I wasn't as into it this time I was expecting to be, that 
that last 30 seconds is just so good. Like, I'm getting chills right now thinking about it. Like, not even watching it. Just thinking about it and talking about it. Like, it's just wonderful. I wish this movie was about two hours long. I think you were right in your prediction of what I was going to say. It is bloated. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And I don't want to talk about The Dark Knight Rises too much here. Obviously, we're going to do an episode on that. So I'm going to talk a lot of my problems with that movie as a whole in the grand scheme of why I think Nolan superhero movies are his weakest movies. I'm going to save that for there. The specifics I'll talk about, obviously, during this episode. But it just in general, to sum it up real quick, uh, because I think the bad is worse here. Um, whereas, like, in Dark Knight Rises, it's, like, consistently eh. Where here, the highs are so high, and then the lows are so low for me, that, like, to me, Joker is poochy. Like, it's like, anytime Joker's not on screen, someone should be asking, where's Joker? Because... Are you talking about, like, Itchy and Scratchy and Poochie? Yeah, yeah, because he's, it's so good, and this is his movie, and the stuff with Two-Face really feels like it just should have been another movie, and the stuff with Mr. Reese just should have been cut entirely. That should have totally been just deleted scene shit. You wouldn't have rushed the climax with the Joker. To sum it up, and I'm going to go more into this, see us in two episodes, the flaw of the end of Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy is that they crumble under the weight of Nolan's, like, simultaneously expansive aesthetic ideas and his subtext that ends up being really vapid. Like, deep down, these movies will always be superhero movies. They will always be about leather daddies just, like, punching each other. It's adolescent power fantasy. That's comic books, not leather daddies. But maybe both. Like, that doesn't mean that a superhero movie can't be great, okay? It just means that there's, like, base concepts that will always be kind of silly and will always kind of undermine the loftier goals that Nolan is going for. And he's, like, good to great at coming up with what I've been repeatedly calling the fortune cookie lines for your Morgan Freemans or your Maggie Gyllenhaals or especially your Michael Caines. This one actually Aaron Eckhart a lot uh, to spit out but when that theme that's been spit out you know you live long enough to see yourself become a villain it's a great line but when push comes to shove and that line has to tie in with the theme and the plot all together it just it's a mess and it collapses under its own weight for me this movie basically comes down to the Joker that is the core for me to this film that's what I love about it the most and that's when I'm most paying attention is when he's on screen because he's just mesmerizing. I also agree that at times this movie is needlessly complex. It kind of feels like there's a lot of compromise going on here at times and I mean rightfully there'd have to be, right? I'm sure there's just big studio ideas about where they want to take Batman even though they know that they've hired Nolan but I'm sure like now Nolan has opened their eyes to a whole slew of other options as far as gritty, dirty realism and all that kind of thing. I think they might even be pushing that a little too far. It's a it's a miracle on one hand that the Joker, that we're not laughing at him, to be quite honest, like by the end of the movie, like, I mean, just the first note of him is so pitch perfect that they're able to play that song just right the whole time. Now, as far as some of the other threads in the movie, maybe not so much, but I do feel like there is a degree of compromise here where it's at its core, it's got to be a Batman movie. So there's going to be children watching and as intense and extreme as this movie does get, there's definitely moments where it's pulling back and like I mean if you can only imagine if he had the liberty to make this an R-rated movie um, I think it could really have met its potential like that way but it just would not have been all-encompassingly pleasing to the general audience at large and that's exactly what they did like they made a movie sure it's not perfect not everyone is gonna like everything about it but in general on the whole like it hit all four quadrants somehow <laughs> like you know I mean you even have Maggie Gyllenhaal's character Rachel who is like 
the real hero of this movie in a lot of ways, like the linchpin and the glue character, the one that actually dies for the cause that she believes in the most, you know, even Harvey ends up getting perverted and distorted in his point and even is before he becomes two-faced to a degree, you know, has a extreme temper and everything. But yeah, I mean, ultimately I just can't deny like how much I love it though. Like, I mean, the pros just totally outweigh the cons for me, even though I'm fully aware that, that some exist. Yeah. I just, I just ultimately don't feel like they, they get in the way. And if you're comparing this to modern stuff, things have definitely taken a lighter tone in general. I mean, even something like the winter soldier, you know, still exists in the MCU and there's things in there that remind you of that, like, like the Zola character. I'll end this here for now, but what I'll pick this up in two episodes when we get to the dark night, rises i just think ultimately it runs out of fun it's still good and it's interesting but i just feel like they get a little too serious down the line and they kind of forget about keeping that fun aspect involved and here there's a lot of really fun moments that that keep it light and cool and yeah maybe toyetic at times but there's a balance here that i'm enjoying should we just talk teeth like should we get it out of the way i just want to say that i have spent the last couple of years thinking that his performance was probably not as good as everyone thought it was in in 2008 and if it came up because i'm a huge nerd and this is things that come up when you've had a couple of beers i would always say that my ideal joker was mark hamill in the arkham games i feel like that's like saying die hard is a christmas movie i'm wrong i i yes i i heard that bruce willis uh, got paid by comedy central to say a line that somebody else wrote yeah which is terrible i don't like bruce willis anymore not that i really did because he doesn't side with my views on die hard is christmas movie but anyway go ahead well i'm wrong heath ledger is incredible he's pitch perfect he creates a character that has almost no sign of the actor in it and i really don't like he won an oscar for this posthumously i'm almost positive that he would not have won that had he not tragically passed away a couple of months before this had come out but that's what award shows do that's not to say that he was not the best actor of that year he was but you know they just need to jerk themselves off uh that's how award shows work see our recent episode now and again where we talk about what award shows really are and I hate, like, fucking Commissioner Gordon just won an Oscar for putting on a fat suit, being in a fucking baby boomer version of the clumps, and playing Churchill. So I hate when, when people win, and that seems to be the regular thing, is you play a character that exists, and you can just study some video, or, like, get the general idea of what this character is from their writing and shit like that, and you win an Oscar. This is a comic book character. This has existed in media before, but it is purely a fictional character, and this is a interpretation of this character that is unlike any interpretation of this we've really seen in written or visual medium before. And one of my favorite lines in comic book history is the Joker is, if I'm going to have a backstory, I prefer it to be multiple choice. And that is really both from Heath Ledger's perspective, he gets to create this new character from scratch, and he gets to use that as a character trait throughout this movie. And it's so much more impressive when something like this, or the year before Anton Sugar, when that kind of stuff wins and deservedly wins an Oscar than someone who's just cosplaying as a fucking politician from 50 years ago. And it's so much more impressive. And I'm, I just, I was so wrong. I'm blown away by this performance all over again. On IMDb, I was talking about on the Batman Begins episode about how many, how much trivia there was and how there was, you know, more trivia than for any movie we've ever done. Dark Knight, surprise, surprise, has more trivia than Batman Begins. It has 268 items in the trivia. It feels like it's almost all about how much money this movie made and all about Heath Ledger. Like, how this is, like, the most successful movie ever to have won, like, the fact that he won an acting Oscar and, like, comic book movies and everything like that. And it feels like there's so much proof, in a way, that, like, what he did was special, and at least in this world or this universe special, because, like, 
this kind of movie isn't supposed to have this kind of performance. Like, I love Robert Downey Jr. in Iron Man movies, and I think he is Iron Man. Like, whenever, if they ever, when they ever, whatever, reboot the MCU and they have another person as Iron Man, they better go way outside the boxes. If they do another white dude, like, it's not going to work. Have a person of color, have a woman, whatever. But Robert Downey is Iron Man. Yet, that's not at all in the stratosphere of what we have here. And we were talking about on the last episode about how good Michael Caine was and about how he's great in all three of these movies and especially, you know, swinging that big dick energy around. I'm just going to say that at the top, like, I forgot all about that boat scene in this movie where he's, like, got the Leo DiCaprio, like, pussy posse. Yeah, he fucks a whole ballerina squad. Banging the entire boat of ballerinas. Like, that is, like, get it, Alfred, yes. But... Like, he's great, but again, like, Heath Ledger, like you're saying, Chris, I mean, it's like this creation of a character, and that's not just him, because one of the things that I read in the trivia was that Christopher Nolan and Jonathan Nolan and David S. Goyer, who we talked about a lot in the Batman Begins episode, decided really early on when they were coming up with the story for this that they were not going to go into the Joker's backstory, that they were not going to show him like they do in Suicide Squad, like, falling into that vat of acid, because they wanted to be able to present him as an absolute. Like, he is just, he is literal chaos in this world, and I think that it's absolutely Heath Ledger's creation and interpretation of that character, but it's also the ability, like, they gave him this, like, world and this mold to play within, and he just took it and ran with it. And there's all these stories about how he went in, like, a, a motel room for six weeks and just held out there and just figured out what he sounded like and what he acted like and what he did. And then, like, little things, like his makeup kept falling off, like, that's why he had to lick his face to actually keep it on there. And then he just, like, turned that into, like, a character tick. And, like, these little sort of happy accidents that all just, like, build together to be this character that people were afraid to be because they were like, Jack Nicholson did the Joker, nobody can do the Joker, and then they cast Heath Ledger, and people were like, Heath Ledger, like the guy from Brokeback and the guy from, like, A Knight's Tale? Like, no, this is never gonna work. And then he goes and fucking crushes it, and then he dies. It's just this wonderful, magical combination of all these universal factors that just go into this thing, and we always play that, like, if you were recasting in modern times, have we recast Heath Ledger or anything? Because I feel like, based on, you know, Brokeback, which I still haven't seen, sorry, and this, and A Knight's like he can be anything like if he can do this like what can he do yeah i think you're forgetting 10 things i hate about you also where he has a major arc in that he goes from like bully to nice guy it's great i haven't seen that but i will when brian covers it shout out to high school slumber party there's a lot of baggage with the Joker in general. I mean, up until now, my favorite was Cesar Romero, just from the original 66 series. Hell yeah. Just paint over that mustache, buddy. Yeah, you know, and it also is also like the last time we had the Joker represented as like a, nor- not normal, but like as a regular person. Like you said, Joey, this Joker didn't fall into like a vat of acid like Jack Napier, didn't murder Batman's parents like in the Tim Burton version. Like there's no connection like any of that, you know, like his makeup is war paint. That's a great explanation. That's all you need. If you know anything about the type of scars he has, you know, it's it's sometimes referred to as the Chelsea smile. Like, it's something that hooligans in other countries give to each other when they catch other people from other teams, like, representing on their side. I mean, there's, like, my point is there's just, like, real-world history to him. Like, anything about him can sort of be summed up like, yes, that's plausible in reality. And that is very terrifying when you realize what what he ends up standing for and and what he's all about and the type of chaos and he can spread because of the resources he has like it's very interesting how part of his philosophy is like you can't really ever tell what someone's going to do and yet he seems to be able to be the master at predicting behavior he has humanity figured out so well but he ends up using that knowledge for extremely destructive purposes like he just wants to burn everything instead of someone like 
Batman who's who's trying to save everything, who also thinks he has it figured out, who has like uh, an aspect of society figured out probably, but is outmatched, I think, in this episode. You know, I just feel like he is truly up against his arch nemesis this time. This is the first time that I've watched this since. Let me take a step back. There is a theory that's gone around for a while that the Joker is like a former soldier suffering from PTSD. He's this guy back from war, and that's why they talk about the war paint. Like, he's got all these things. Like, you know, he's got weapons expertise, and he's, you know, ruthless, and he's fearless, and all this different stuff. And he's deranged, and, you know, maybe that's why he was broken, because of what he saw in war. I don't know if either of you saw it, but earlier this year, about two months ago, Pat Oswalt wrote on Facebook, he did this long Facebook post about how maybe he's not a soldier suffering PTSD, maybe he's ex-military intelligence. Do either of you know about this theory or no? No. I had vaguely heard something about him being a, a former soldier, yeah, but I, I just didn't seem worth looking at. So Pat Oswalt wrote this whole thing on May 12th. Basically, the crux of it is he's basically preying on fears. He's got that line, like, I know the squealers when I see them. There's, like, this bit where, you know, where Batman interrogates him, like, one of, like, the key scenes in this movie, and he's basically controlling that interrogation. Like, it seems like Batman's in charge because Batman's the one hitting his head on the table and everything, but it feels like the Joker wants that. Like, he's sort of goading Batman into all this different stuff. This was the first time I'd seen this movie since I had heard about this theory, since, you know, Pat Oswalt wrote about it, and I think it's also maybe the first time that I've seen it since I knew about the, you know, thought about it within the, the PTSD military angle, and it's just fascinating that, like, he is just this, like, this absolute force of chaos and evil and disruption, and that just seems to be all that he wants, but at the same time, when you have, like, a specific archetypal backstory or the specific, like, reason why he is the way he is, it kind of makes him more terrifying. Like, if you're like, oh, like, this guy is not only able to control the whole city with, like, a couple barrels of gasoline and a couple bullets, you know what I mean? Like, he's able to do all that with, like, so little, but here, it's essentially just, like, getting people to do what he wants them to do by knowing how people react. And, like, it's these, like, little ingenious ways that the character is built either through suggestion or maybe through writing. Like, maybe Christopher Nolan told him that, or maybe that was just his thing, or maybe that's just an intelligent reading of it. But it's just, like, these little ways that things build together that I think are just, like, super cool. I guess that's as good a backstory as any. I never liked knowing Joker's backstory in any capacity. I mean, the, the Killing Joke is an extremely popular comic, but I never really enjoyed it because it's like, oh, the Joker was actually a failed stand-up comedian who posed as a criminal and got into the accident that we all know about when he rushed up against Batman. And there's just something about the enigma of him. Part of it, too, is whatever you want it to be. Like, you can just project so much onto this character. Like, even what they did to his makeup, they changed it a little bit and so like he's got the big dark circles under his eyes he he resembles a skull a lot more than he used to i never really occurred to me that he had sort of like that death's mask going on he is just becoming more dangerous by the scene I'm a little less interested in, in playing the who is the joker game because i think it's important in regards to the dichotomy of batman and the joker which is really what this movie is buttressed on the reason why it's so strong and it's so good is that and that's why it falls off when that's not happening because batman says throughout batman begins you know i'm I'm just a man but batman could be a symbol that needs to be what the joker is without the man though he can't be the man the joker just has to be a force of nature the joker has to be a fucking sharknado that just rolls through gotham city he's just a natural disaster the joker can't be a man, both from the idea of Batman can punch a man to death, like that's that's what Batman does. Uh, well, not to death, I guess, but he can't be flesh and bone. He has to be more of this nebulous thing, this idea. And he even says that because that's how he beats Batman in the end. When Batman is using enhanced interrogation on the Joker and beating the absolute fuck out of him, the Joker starts laughing and he says, you have nothing on me. I'm not afraid of you. 
I don't fear you. And that is the moment when he beats Batman, because that is what is so important. We've spent the last movie with Batman creating his identity, because identity is such a major thing in Nolan's oeuvre, and it's his theme across so many of his movies, and for the Joker to just be the exact antithesis of everything that Batman is striving for and attempting to be, that is what is the most important. So to even consider the Joker a man is, I think, to be slightly missing the point of him, which is why he so often goes to that. I think the movie spits in the face of that, which is why they do the, you know, you want to know how I got these scars? Like that, that is such an integral part of the character to say that there's nothing there. He just, he didn't exist until the moment he took that mask off in the bank at the beginning of this movie. He starts there and then it's just, he's tabula rasa, he's a blank slate. And if you make him human, you fail the character. At least in how Nolan wants to do it, because you need an antithesis. It's almost another one up on Batman because Joker became a symbol before him in a lot of ways because he found a lot more people willing to rally around his cause. Like he rallies the mob. Like criminals are so much easier to persuade and get on your side than the average good citizen that really, you know, has no power but would like to have power and do something. So I just love that Batman is outmatched. He's just totally outmatched. It's just something he never seems to have considered before. It's something Gordon said at the end of the last movie where he's like, as Escalation, You know, what about this Joker fella? And then in the beginning of this movie, Gordon's like, you know, Joker. But Batman's like, yeah, we'll get to Joker. We got the mob to deal with. And he's like, one man isn't as much as the mob here. But it's like, no, like, that's the thing. Like, you, you're you missing the point, Batman. Like, it's you. You're, the, you know, it's like you're discrediting yourself because you're just one man taking on the entire mafia. You know, like, of course, there's there should be the opposite. There should be a one man on their side as well. So it's interesting how short-sighted he sort of is until the Joker literally, like, comes he doesn't know Bruce Wayne's Batman, but it's funny how he comes to Batman's house and like pisses all over his floor and like slaps around his lady and just like has his way with the place and everything, you know, and it really has to get to the point where Bruce just can't hide from it anymore. Isn't there a theory, or maybe it's even The Dark Knight Rises, where, like, if Batman didn't exist, these villains wouldn't exist? Like, there'd still be the mafia, there'd still be the mob, but, like, without Batman, there's no Joker. And what I like about this movie, what I think is really smart about the way that they introduced the Joker, is that from the beginning, like, he's introduced to us in, like, still one of the coolest, that bank robbery, the the mafia, the guy from Prison Break, and the, the bus... I also don't understand how, like, a bus pulling out onto the street into a line of buses that also have kids on it goes unnoticed, but, like, I'm willing to, you know, let it slide because it's super cool. But, like, I like that he's introduced us, but when, you know, 15, 20 minutes in the movie or whatever, that scene that Mike was just talking about, where Gordon is talking to Batman and, like, Joker, and, like, it's not like they're explaining who the Joker is. Like, they know about the Joker. Like, Joker's been around. That according to what I read online, like, there's, like, there's been, like, nine months between Batman Begins and this movie. So if he left his calling card at the end of Batman Begins, He's been around for nine months. So even though he's new to us, he's not new to this world. And I think that's really cool. Like, it's sort of the opposite. And again, what I was saying before, the opposite of an origin story. Like, he just exists in the world. And we don't have to be like, oh, who's this new guy? He's new to us, but he's not new to Batman. He's not new to Commissioner Gordon. He's not new to the world. He's just there. And I think it just cuts out all that nonsense that you sort of get in a lot of the lesser superhero movies where you're like, well, who's the bad guy? Where does he come from? Who are his minions? Who are this different stuff? Five or six different times in this movie, the Joker just shows up with, like, random goons. You're like, where'd they come from? It's like, it also doesn't matter, because he just is able to convince anyone to go with him and ostensibly give their lives just to, to cause a little chaos. And I think it's just so smart that they're able to just skip all of the how did we get here, and just, like, the movie is essentially just a dog chasing cars. It doesn't want to catch the car, it just wants to, like, do things. It's just like, here's the Joker. Let's just have some fun. 
I think that's a, a good strength of the brand, right? Is that they are at a point with a character in a franchise that's so well known that they can subvert people's expectations. And that's crazy because everyone, you know, first, like you were saying, like it was almost like the um, Michael Keaton syndrome where it's like, how is this guy going to be playing the Joker? You know, like I never would have imagined he would have done it. And then not only does he come along and like blow it out of the water, but it's a completely wild new version of the Joker that we never thought we'd see on film. Let's put it that way. Maybe stuff like this has gotten close in the comics. I know at one point he like rips his own face off and staples it back on at some point because comic books run out of ideas. Um, Don't worry, that probably got rebooted a year and a half later. But yeah, I think it's really great because the audience is sitting there going like, oh man, I can't wait for the Joker to show up. Uh, But then when he shows up, it's at least for me, it's way beyond my expectations. Like, I've stepped in, and again, this, we've almost mentioned this, I think, on every episode, but this is where I get more of that horror movie Nolan vibe, because the Joker is definitely a maniac. You know, he's just this, another sort of, like, crazy guy with a knife running around, you know, killing people. And it's just that he happens to be the smartest person in a crime film. Like, he's in, he's stuck in a crime movie against Batman, and it's just amazing. It's wonderful how he's able to genre blend and mash all these sort of different characters who belong in different movies, and yet maybe by virtue of it being a comic book story or, or a superhero movie or something, everything is able to settle well. Like, everything plays well well together like when Rachel and the Joker meet yeah like that that feels right like that's yeah I think those two people live in the same universe and definitely by the way they interact she is acting extremely appropriately in response to the seeing someone like the Joker there's always something more for me to watch for and to look at whenever Joker's on screen so I, I think that comes down to what this movie is doing, and it's doing something that is really clever with its main hero and its main villain, which in this day and age, a lot of movies just don't do, which is make the good guy good, make the bad guy bad. Don't make us try to sympathize with the bad guy. Don't try to make the person clever. It's funny, Joey, that you brought up the just off an offhand comment about the, the school bus, uh, because that made me think of Die Hard 3 with the dump trucks, and that made me think of the other best face versus heel dynamic in a film ever, which is Hans Gruber and John McClane, because that is also... I'm going to go to D&D. I don't know if you guys know anything about D&D. Don't turn off the podcast, folks at home. I'm going to explain this. Dungeons and Dragons, for everybody who's not a nerd. Dungeons and Dragons, I'm sorry. D&D has an alignment system. It allows you to pick your characters kind of where they fall in the order and the philosophy of the land that it exists in, okay? So picture like a a tic-tac-toe board or like a Brady Bunch face thing. You have... Going vertically down the left, you have good. In the middle, you have neutral. And on the right side, you have evil. And then across horizontally, you have lawful, neutral, or chaotic, okay? So on the top left, you have lawful good, which means you follow a code, which means you will not break that code under any circumstances. And on the bottom right, you have chaotic evil, which means you are trying to attain a goal, but you are doing it via any means necessary. Uh, now, people play D&D very poorly, and they play lawful good as stupid dum-dums, usually paladins, who, like, do the dumbest shit possible, and they play chaotic evil as a 14-year-old kid who's like, duh, I'm gonna kill everyone in this bar, because I'm chaotic evil, and I'm gonna go have sex with a prostitute, because it's, it's very monkey cheese. It's really bad. They play it like they're playing GTA. Yeah, ex- oh, fucking exactly, that's perfect. 
But when when you do that in a story, okay, it is a tale as old as time, song as old as rhyme. Beauty and the Beast? But yes, very, very accurately. Look at 1970s professional wrestling, okay? Because the most important, the biggest thing that you can have in an antagonist and a protagonist, and this is why a lot of antagonists and protagonists fail other than them trying to get too cute, is the best way that they can clash and force each other into difficult situations is when they are fighting over the same thing. That's very rare that that happens. Usually one is trying to stop the other or prevent the other from doing something, but when they're both fighting over the same thing, and this, it's the fate of Gotham. In professional wrestling, the heel will knock the referee out and use their manager to sweep the leg or hit someone with a chair. The face will only follow the rules and will get the crowd behind him, but they're both fighting over the belt. In this movie, the belt is Gotham. They are both fighting for the soul of Gotham, and it's such a simple idea. Have someone stay within the rules to try to get the thing, and have someone go by any means necessary to try to get the thing, and have them clash and push each other and have them try to break their code. It's so simple, yet fucking screenwriters try to get so cute, and it ruins the dynamic. And this movie is just so simple and to the point. And yeah, it's not that simple. The stuff with Gordon and his dying and coming back to life is dumb as shit, and it requires one of the characters to have had the script and stuff with uh, Two-Face is real doofy, but it doesn't matter. The stuff between Batman and the Joker is a perfect heel face lawful good chaotic evil dynamic fighting over the same thing and that is why it works so fucking well it's not hard we could all write a movie we could all do this folks I think what's also impressive is that for as much praise as we've heaped on Christopher Nolan through these first six episodes, he's never done this nearly this well before. Like we had, like I'm, I can't stop thinking now about Insomnia and about how the big bad was Robin Williams. It's like, well, okay, cool. And it's just not like he's supposed to be this like foreboding sense of evil and like kind of, I guess, Joker light, light, light. Like he's just a little, you know, like he could do it to your kids or your sister or your whatever, but like it doesn't hit home, and I don't know if it's the performance or the writing. And then just last movie, we're talking about The Prestige. When we're talking about, you said about how Melissa was like, who's the bad guy? And it's like, I don't know if there's, they're trying to articulate a bad guy. Like, in this movie, very clearly, there's a good guy and there's a bad guy. It's not like The Prestige, where there doesn't necessarily need to be a bad guy, even though there kind of is. But if there is, it's not clearly defined and clearly articulated and sort of carried to term. Here, they could not be more extreme, good versus evil, chaotic versus lawful. That's what it is. It's simple, like you're saying. Don't overcomplicate things. And for a lot of his movies to have these like kind of conflicts where it's you know one side versus another, it's never been simpler. But it's also never been done better than in this movie. Yeah, and it also gets back to what we've also been saying about his stories: is that most of his stories, even when they're presented in a very complex manner, this one isn't. This one's presented in a very straightforward manner. I feel more so than than the rest of his films. They're all very simple stories for the most part, or the story in and of itself isn't exactly what is so spectacular. But and then in this case, the simplicity of it is adding to what is so sort of unique about it, especially in this time of film and everything, where I feel like, yeah, people for whatever reason just can't settle on an idea or a choice or something. And it just feels like they came up with that choice very early on, that Joker is on this side, Batman's on that side. All the stuff that we're going to do with about duplicity and everything, 
everything, we're going to handle that with Dent. Now, I kind of wish they took a little more time and waited for another movie maybe to flesh some of that out. But ultimately, the death of Harvey Dent makes sense. And there's a lot of closure thematically with that. Now, it's, again, not my favorite stuff. I, I, I kind of wish that he survived a while or turned earlier. But for what he's trying to accomplish here, he makes his point with that pretty well. Another thing, it's so funny, some of the actual sort of like plot devices in this film are, come from other Batman movies even. There's the whole thing when he has to decide between uh, Harvey and Rachel. I mean, that was done in Batman Forever for crying out loud, where he has to decide between Dr. Chase and Robin. I mean, it and it was done again in Spider-Man 1 when Spider-Man had to decide between like an entire tram full of kids and Mary Jane. So it's like these tropes that are being presented just better because he's Christopher Nolan, I feel, but also exist within the world of Batman organically more clearly. It's about their philosophies. They're really trying to get Gotham to align with them. Joker says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get you to break your one rule tonight. Then he tries to get the boats to align with their philosophy, to prove a point. They're both just trying to prove a point by fighting for the soul of Gotham City. Which side will it fall on? And in the, in the end, he doesn't exactly get... Batman to break his rule, but that's the story. That's what gets out. So the Joker wins at the end of this. This is indeed the Empire Strikes Back of this trilogy, even though like the middle hour of Dark Knight Rises is also the Empire Strikes Back of this trilogy and might also be why that movie doesn't work either. But this is the bad one. This is the, the one where the good guy does not win at the end. And, and the Joker, there's so much hinted at. We talked about in The Prestige how so much is hinted at in the lead up to this. There's a lot hinted at just based on their philosophies alone that kind of implies that Batman cannot beat this Joker. Well, I think it also comes down to that lawful good in a way, right? Like, Because he has the opportunity multiple times to kill the Joker and he just won't do it. Like, he just abides by that code. I don't remember my anti-trailer policy going back to 2008. It might have been selective back then, but I remember going to this movie having seen nothing about this movie. And so when the Tumblr becomes the Batbike, I was like, holy shit, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And so that whole sequence is incredible. But where the Batbike is coming at Joker, and he's like, I want you to do it, I want you to do it, I want you to do it, hit me, hit me. And then he, like, bails at the last second, then, you know, almost gets caught or whatever until Commissioner Gordon comes back from the dead, arrests the Joker, which is all part of his plan anyway. But I think, to your point, Chris, like, you can't beat the Joker because, like, I think part of him doesn't want to beat the Joker. I don't know if it's in this movie or maybe the Arkham games or maybe I'm just making this up or whatever, but it feels like Batman needs the Joker to validate the existence of Batman. To a point, right? Because it gets to a stage in the movie where Joker's like, hey, every day the Batman doesn't take off his mask, people are going to die. And, it, and, you know, a couple days later, Batman's like, I got to finally do it. Like, he literally makes the choice in this movie to stop being Batman. He's going to do it. But then takes his place. I feel like at multiple stages, Batman has faced a wall and says, I can't outmaneuver this guy. Like, I just don't play chess at this level. Like, he's just outsmarting me. He's just way too ahead of me. I think on one level, I used to think like, yeah, there would be no Batman without a Joker. Like, if you got rid of Joker, whatever. But then there's like this whole other rogues gallery of Batman villains that I remembered exist just off screen waiting to happen. Yeah, it's just really interesting that this movie at multiple times is saying that Batman lost this battle, Batman's losing this battle, and ultimately when he has to take credit for the death of Dent, he's, he loses the war. And that's why Batman the Joker will always be 
so closely connected. You know, spoilers for Arkham City, if you've never played it. As good as this movie is, and as, as much as I've walked back at the beginning of this episode, my idea that Mark Hamill's cartoon Joker is the best Joker, it does still have the absolute best Joker and Batman moment out, maybe other than the last couple of panels of The Killing Joke, where the Joker is dying of basically a disease he's brought upon himself, and Batman had it as well, I believe, in City, if I'm not mistaken. Um, this is going to be paraphrased and a little bit jumbled from all those games run together. But through, throughout all of Joker trying to kill Batman, he can only cure himself, and he loses the cure that he was he had an extra one. And as he gets to Joker at the end of the game, he's like, you know, in the end, I was going to save you. And, like, Joker's last thing is to just laugh and go, <laughs> that's pretty funny, before he dies. And, like, that is so quintessentially Joker. It's a shame that there's no real moment of that philosophy smashing together at the very end. I actually think the final showdown between Batman and the Joker in this movie is very anticlimactic because it does rely on Batman's philosophy winning out based on tiny Zeus Lister, president of the Fifth Element universe. Not flipping the thing or, uh, you know, that whole thing. But it, it doesn't rely on either of them. Neither of them do the thing. They are not the catalyst. And that's why it doesn't work for me. It's just like, it's like an election almost. It's like, oh, my side, the, the city voted for me. I won. It, it fails in that way a little bit. There, there, there was no clash of the philosophies and no ultimate like catharsis of that other than Joker going, you know, I think you and I are going to be doing this for a long time. That feels really right. The, the unfortunate circumstances kind of dampened that in the long term, but in the context of the movie, it works really well. But the fact that there is no payoff to their clash of philosophies, I think really does hurt this, or at least direct clash hurts this a little bit. I almost wonder if, like, if Heath Ledger hadn't died, I mean, we could play this game all day, but just like in Arkham Knight, how Joker's still in Arkham Knight, like, he dies in City, like you say, but he's in Knight, like, he's part of Batman's brain, and he's just, like, around every corner, he's just, like, taunting Batman the whole game, like, I wonder if Heath Ledger hadn't died, you know, they bring back Scarecrow in this movie for, like, a scene, he comes back a little bit in the third movie, and this is, I think, if I read this right, the first time in the Batman franchise as a whole that the villain has come back for another movie, like, in the same sort of world which I think is kind of remarkable. But I wonder if Heath Ledger hadn't died, if he would have come back in The Dark Knight Rises, even if he's not the main thing, or even if he's not like a scarecrow thing, it's just like part of Batman's psyche. Because it feels like going through this, you're not going to be able to shake him. I will say, just having just watched it, Scarecrow being the judge of that court and doing stuff like, hmm, yeah, exile or death, hmm, death by exile, feels very jokery to me. And I wonder if that was maybe who they had in mind since Scarecrow doesn't really fit in there. But that movie didn't even exist in anyone's mind until far after this came out. That scene just does feel very jokery to me and maybe that's where they would have fit him in but yeah I do agree that we can never possibly follow like philosophize or, or hypothesize or figure out what no one would have done yeah I, I was under the impression that they were just gonna bring him back in some manner and that they just have to change all their plans after what happened he could have been a good Hannibal Lecter style just like in jail and being and just talking to Batman through the next thing yeah there was actually a rumor that there's some storyboards out there of when everyone's getting released from prison that Bane leaves Joker behind because he's too dangerous or something but I never those were never Never real or anything. Quickly getting back to what you were saying just before there, Chris, about sort of how their final climax doesn't really have like the umph or the the big sort of like weight behind it that you know you might feel it, it should. I'm I'm inclined to agree with you there, even though I still enjoy what's going on because I think that scene happened during the interrogation room scene. Like I think that is the scene that yeah does all of the work, and maybe you know they should have saved some of that sort of philosophizing between each other for the end. I mean, the end speech between Joker, I mean, it's basically the Joker talking to Batman, but I really enjoy a lot of the stuff they drop, like we're destined to do this forever. It's a nice sort of little meta nod to the idea that they're always, you know, that they're arches in uh, comics and they just 
millions of stories about these guys. But I also just love the reveal in that moment of how he talks about Harvey, this whole other side of Harvey that, you know, Batman thought he could control Harvey in a way, or Batman thought he had talked sense into him. And Batman thought, like, because of what happened to Rachel, it would make Harvey be more like him. But in fact, you know, I guess in true Nolan fashion, the death of, uh, in this case, I guess his fiance, we find out at the last second, compelled him to do terrible things to the world in order to sort of get his revenge or just to regain fairness. I mean, it's almost, he goes on a bit of a Thanos rage with his, you know, 50-50 tirade here in the last half hour or so. But ultimately, it feels almost like they're wrapping everything up here at the end a little too quickly. And I guess they're letting Batman and Joker's philosophy speak through the citizens of Gotham. And even though they voted to blow up the boat, they still don't. So I guess they're thinking more like Batman than Joker at that moment. I don't enjoy watching Batman punch dogs. I've never liked that about this movie, but I understand there are dogs raised by Joker. So, I mean, what can you really do? It's still really cool. I, I really like his sonar stuff. We didn't mention the sonar thing, but damn, that was really cool. While we're on that scene, I've kind of poo-pooed Christopher Nolan's, just like his shots have not really been interesting. So the transition when Joker is dropping and he gets pulled up, the slow transition from the Joker being upside down to right side up as he's talking to Batman about how they're going to be doing this forever, I think is really unsettling and cool. And maybe my favorite Nolan shot thus far, despite it being very simple. And also, have you guys, I don't know where I heard this. This might just be like internet bullshit fan theory wank. But in my mind, this was fact for a long time and I don't know why. Have you heard that if one of the boats turned the key and pulled the trigger, it would have ended up blowing up their own boat. I've heard that too. I don't know if I believe that. I never heard that. Okay, so that's not a canon thing. That was just like deleted script stuff. Okay, I don't know where I heard that, but that has been in my mind for so many years, and then it wasn't in this upon a rewatch, and I just, I was like, huh, okay, though the internet ruined my brain, like it has been doing for years. Hey, welcome to the internet. Have you met? I just wrote down, just, you know, talking about the Joker. There's so many, like, there's a, there's a handful of, like, the scenes, like the one at the end, like you keep talking about, Chris, there's the interrogation scene, as we mentioned a couple times. There's also the scene where he introduces himself to, like, all the mob bosses, and he makes a, you know, I'm gonna make this pencil disappear, and he slams on the guy's head, and I was just like, oh shit, that's the prestige. He's just like, look over here, look over here, boom, there you go. And I was like, oh, cool. But he even says, you want to see a magic trick? I was like, hey, we just saw a whole movie that was a magic trick, and it was awesome. Of course I want to say, ooh, that's a magic trick, wow. What I love about that scene, aside from that moment and everything, is that somebody asks him, they're like, you think you can just steal from us and walk away? He's just like, yeah, like I just did. Like, what do you, like, because they're tough and they're mean and like, they're putting bounties on his head and everything, but he's just like, he's fearless. He doesn't care if he dies. Multiple times he gets himself arrested, but he gives himself up for bounty so he can teach that guy a lesson. Like, he's going to put himself in the lion's den or in the dragon's mouth or whatever metaphor you want to use because, like, that's where he just, like, has the most fun. And they're tough and they're mean and they've got guns and they've got goons, but they're not going to beat the Joker because he's just like, yeah, of course I can steal from you. Like, you're, you're dumb. I'm smarter than Batman, and Batman's like the smartest man in the world. Like, or because I'm fearless, I'm smarter than Batman. Like, of course I can steal from you. I just did. What are you going to do about it? Oh, and also, by the way, I don't care that I stole from you. I'm going to burn all that money anyway. It's useless to me. So, like, what are you going to do with that? Yeah, I think you nailed it when you said that he's fearless because Batman represents fear. And like like Chris said in the interrogation room, I'm not afraid of you. There's nothing you can do because I have no fear of you. And that just gives you a supreme confidence to do anything. Like walk into a room of the entire mob and state your demands and just be like, you're going to give me half of all the money to kill Batman. Yeah, they laugh at him, but then he ends up controlling the city in what, like a week? You know, and he's like, you guys work for me now. 
Yeah. Oh, this whole movie, aside from like the the extremes, like the the funeral and everything, it's nine days. This whole movie is nine days. So like everything you see in here, he goes from like the city being normal to like insane in barely over a week. Yeah. So he's super effective in his methods, if nothing else. You know, I mean, the Joker put his mind to something, and you know, he talks about not being a guy with a plan, but clearly he had a plan and he executed it perfectly. And like all of that, not a plan. Talk to Harvey is just part of the plan to get Harvey to be Harvey ultimately. And yeah. Yeah, it's just more great jokerism. I think that's what you just said is so integral to the character when he says, you know, do I look like a guy with a plan? No, you look like a juggalo dressed as a nurse, which is, I guess, a fetish I didn't know that I had. But you do clearly have a very intricate plan every time you do something. Like every single thing, the, the bank stuff with the guy with the phone in his stomach, intricate plan. That's a misdirection. That is a prestige throughout this movie is that the Joker has very, very in-depth plans never quite to the point of needing to read the script like the gordon shit did but his plans are very elaborate he is putting on the persona much like batman is putting on the persona of the knight and and being the shadow that beats the shit out of you if you're a bad guy he's putting on the persona of a clown that doesn't have a plan that is an agent of chaos that rolls through like a tornado but he is meticulous as fuck he always has an out he always has an escape route he's got that pocket full of grenades when he meets the mob for the first time he knows exactly what he's doing the plan just to get in and kill Michael Jai White, where he's in a body bag. That's a meticulous plan. It's not as as some of his other things, but it's a plan. He never doesn't have a plan. And that is the Joker's major misdirection that I think he's been fooling not just people in the film, but viewers of this film in for 10 years now. One other line that I really like that I just want to just say while we're still on the topic of what we're talking about the Joker is that when they're talking, when he's talking to Michael Jai White and all the goons in that room, he's like, you know, I'm going to kill the Batman. Like, if you can kill them, why don't you kill them? He's like, if you're good at something, never do it for free. And like, it's just, I think another, you know, he's just like been in this world. He's been in this mindset. Like, he has everything planned out. Like, he says he's just a dog chasing cars, but he's also not, right? Like, he's just, he knows exactly what to do if he catches one. He just does things, but at the same time, he's also playing chess when like everybody except for maybe Batman and Gordon are playing checkers. He, he just has no fear. He'll go into a room with Batman. He'll let Harvey Dent put a gun to his head. He'll stand in front of the bat bike or whatever the fuck. He just, he just doesn't give a shit. And that is how he wins. I also do love in that scene where we meet him with the mob for the first time. So that's kind of the first time we see him other than the cold open. And this Joker doesn't really joke a ton. He's got some like really dry sardonic stuff, but he's not like, he doesn't have a giant parade float full of uh, like gas and shit like that and uh, electric buzzers and acid flowers and certainly not Cesar Romero. I love that the first time we see him outside of that because in that bank robbery he does do the I'm gonna kill the bus driver and he's got the fake gas grenade so two like kind of gags there but the first time we see him when he walks in that room he's fake laughing which I love and never notice he's just like ha 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 it's so creepy and spooky and I never noticed it and I love it and it signals so hard that it's like this ain't your daddy's joker and you're I hate that kind of stuff, but I love this here. It's really good. So there was a thing, I don't know if it's, I think it was probably an IMDb trivia that I just blew by, but they're like, there's only three things he does in this movie that could be considered jokes, and one is the pencil trick, and I was like, all right. But one thing that I guess is kind of a joke, which I think is like, I think it's the most unintentionally or maybe intentionally funny, it's just, it's completely unbelievable, is when after Harvey has his face blown off, and he's in the hospital room, and Joker's the nurse, and he takes his mask off, and Harvey freaks out. Before he takes the mask off, you can still see his crazy hair, and, like, his eyes and, like, his, like, chin and, like, it's all painted. Like, he's not a normal person. Like, it's very clearly the Joker. And then he takes the 
mask off, and Harvey's like, holy shit, it's you. Like, I didn't, like, just his overreaction to that is just crazy to me. and makes me laugh every time, and I'm not sure if I'm supposed to laugh, because it doesn't feel like we're laughing at the joke, or feels like we're laughing at the movie, which doesn't feel right, but you guys know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, and he's got so many little, uh, my favorite, my personal favorite one, and I, I do love all of his, mostly his facial expressions and his reactions to people. I'm shocked that he's not more of a Twitter reaction gif staple, but I love when he's like, oh, you shouldn't punch people in the head first, it makes them all fuzzy, and then Batman just fucking breaks his hand with his fist, and he's like, and he just doesn't react, and he goes, see? Like, that is really funny to me. Yeah, I, I mean, just his body language in general is incredible. Like, you know, if you watch this movie, when you watch this movie, you don't know he's the guy in the bank robbery, because they keep talking about how the Joker's not part of the crew and stuff, but if you go back after watching this movie, you can definitely keep an eye on that guy and by his walk and body language it's definitely him yeah it's just he reveals more and more of that kind of stuff throughout the movie like when he's licking his face or when he's sort of like got his long hair so he like flicks his hair around a lot one of my favorite shots of the whole movie is when he escapes prison and he's got his head sticking out of the car window as it's driving down the street I mean it's just such perfect imagery for the Joker I mean and he talks about being a dog chasing cars and that is just like a dog with his head out of the window I also love the truck that he's in during the chase there's a slogan on the side of it and it says like come join the laughter and it's got an, an s spray paint in front of it to be slaughter it says laughter is the best medicine there it is okay there you go i also i think my absolute favorite and i don't know if this was christopher nolan heath ledger someone in the prop department they deserve an oscar for this alone but when they say the big trailer moment i really remember this trailer for a, a lot of reasons but He's like, oh, came in here with nothing in his pockets but knives and lint, and they show the scene of them laying out all the knives. There is a fucking potato peeler in there, and that is so creepy and so funny to me. Oh, you could do so much damage with that. Well, because you know he used that to kill someone and to read all the intimate, intricate emotions pouring out of his face in the last seconds of his death, so much so that he knows people better than their best friends, and he's only just killed them. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. Just imagine an implement in your kitchen that would be more painful to be slowly murdered with than like a, a cheese grater maybe a melon baller yeah it's it's very good it's very very good he apparently based his look on sid vicious combined with alex delarge from a clockwork orange i can see those like his mannerisms his look his sort of appearance his overall persona if you guys ever i don't know if you ever heard of the punk band the addicts from the uk but they use this imagery. It kind of looks just like this Joker. It's uh, They wear uh, bowler hats, but their paint faces are painted white like clowns, and they just sort of have the red across their mouth like that. I wonder if some of that wasn't Christopher Nolan living, having grown up uh, partially in the UK and getting some of that maybe punk influence in there. There's so much, like, I feel like his death means that there's so much, like, apocrypha about, like, this character. Like, if you were like, yeah, Heath Ledger based his performance on Marlon Brando and his pet iguana, I would fucking believe it. Why not? I feel like there's just so much space for this character and this creation to be and that's part of the beauty of it. It's just, it's going to be kind of a mystery forever. Well, Chris, you know, there ain't no iguana. Is that Cage? That is Cage, yeah. Is that Bad Lieutenant? Mm-hmm. Okay, I, I missed that, but I see what you did there. Because I know you love that movie. Another thing that's really cool about, I feel like this is just becoming the Joker podcast, which I am totally okay with. Another thing that's really cool about this movie is that the Joker, or Heath Ledger, actually created those two home videos that the Joker sends to GCN, the Gotham City News. Yeah, th those are like real horror movie sort of found footage type stuff. 
stuff right there. According to IMDb, the first one, Christopher Nolan oversaw the shooting of that because he wanted to make sure he could do it. And then, like, apparently it, things went so well that the second one he does, he just did on his own. Christopher Nolan's like, yeah, I trust you. And so he just did that. But also, unrelated to the Joker, but related to overseeing the shooting, once again, just like Batman Begins, no second unit on this. Every shot in this movie, I guess, except for that one, Christopher Nolan was there for. So, again, crazy. Considering we just said two years earlier between these movies, he just done The Prestige. A year from now or whatever, maybe two years from now, he's going to make Inception. How does he have so much time? It's just crazy. It's crazy. It's taking that auteur thing to the next level, like totally hands-on every single thing. The thing I love about that second Joker video the most, though, with Anthony Michael Hall, I mean, not just because it's Anthony Michael Hall in there, but every third or fourth word the Joker is saying to make sure that he's reading the script correctly, like that to me was such a great little personal touch for the character that's shown through there. But that first one is horror, is just terrifying. Like, even just watching it in the middle of a Batman movie, I'm like, wow, um, yeah, how did they get away with that? That is, uh, you know, the MPAA must really love Batman. I kind of wish they did a little bit more with the negative aspect of Batman as a symbol. Um, get it in the opening scene and we get it there, and then it's, that's it? We get the dead guy hung by the mayor's office. Like, that is a huge, I feel like that's huge for a Batman Batman movie. Visually, we have the Joker killed a Batman impersonator and hung him up outside City Hall. Like, that is, we still got that. Like, that's pretty insane. And I know that you, Joey, are a, I don't know about you, Mike, but you're a lost guy, Joey. You noticed, you recognize that mayor in these movies, right? Oh, of course, Richard Alpert. How could you not recognize that all-natural, beautiful eyeliner on that boy? I know, just wonderful. He's like a hundred and something years old. Yeah. I feel like we need to talk about Two-Faced, Harvey Dent, and just get away from the Joker a little bit. I believe in Harvey Dent. Before we talk about that, I, I just I just got to think in my notes that Mr. Reese, we very quickly talked about at the beginning and then got rid of. Mr. Reese, his name is just like Edward Nigma, Mr. Reese, Mr. Reese, which cool not cool. You know what I mean? Like, just ugh. Yeah, if it was going to be Riddler, they probably would have gotten, like, an actual name actor in there, I feel. Like, this guy is a nobody. I always thought that was just a rumor, that there was like, oh, he's going to be, that's the Riddler. I was like, no, if anybody's anyone, Lau is the calculator. Like, that is who we have. In the last movie, we had Victor Zaz show up, actually, for, like, a scene or two. He was a real villain in the Batman universe, but no, I don't think we get any anyone I'm willing to buy in this. I just would like to say it's fucking bullshit that Eric Roberts was not playing the Calendar Man. Eric Roberts' part, both Bob Hoskins and James Gandolfini auditioned for that role. Wow. Second straight movie where someone falls directly onto their leg and then smashes their patella. I guess that's a fear of Christopher Nolan's. Hugh Jackman does that when he falls through the stage and the, the pads have been pulled. That is a gnarly injury. That's a great scene, too, where he's like, I'm not going to die from this height. And he's like, I don't want you to die. Whatever he says, he's like, you're not supposed to die. It's just, I'm just going to drop. I'm just going to break your... See, like, that's fine. I'm fine with Batman actually doing something like that as long as he never picks up a gun. These are the lengths he's allowed to go to. That's what makes him Batman. That's why he's a vigilante. That's why, like, sometimes I have problems with him being a member of the Justice League. I just feel like his methods are a little too extreme to play well with others. But I just love that we get, you know, him busting up the club and, yeah, going to extremes in this movie that we haven't seen in any other Batman film. I think this one has the worst action other than the chase scene in it. I think any of the hand-to-hand -hand stuff in this movie is really, really bad. You mentioning the club reminded me. Well, the, I think the action for me comes in stuff like the Hong Kong sequence. Like, it's more of like a set piece kind of thing in, in like an entirety as opposed to just like a fight or something. So, like, I love, I love the Hong Kong sequence and then the penthouse attack. Yeah, so there's some cool little moments. 
every single physical fight scene is choreographed the exact same way. He like spins, he hammer smashes the guy's gun downward and then like elbows up. And like he just does that forever in this movie. It's really noticeable and really bad, especially after how much we complimented the action in Begins. And in the third one, the hand-to-hand stuff, even though it like goes on a little bit long, it's really realistic and brutal and up close, which I think is important for Bane and Batman. We'll get there. But just for as much of a superhero movie as this is, I think that is a really noticeable weakness as well. But this movie, unlike Batman Begins, doesn't have the flash fighting or the flash combat or whatever. It's actual combat, which is noticeable. A couple other things I want to say about the Joker before we move on to Harvey, and I'm going to have a transition from Joker to Harvey. In the interrogation scene, Heath Ledger apparently told Christian Bale, like, hit me like you're actually hitting the Joker, which that's kind of terrifying, so I guess he did that. But the other thing, another sort of really character moment was that Aaron Eckhart spoke about a unique experience he had with Heath Ledger during the hospital scene. He said that before lines were exchanged, Ledger would just walk around in character, mumbling to himself in an odd manner. All Eckhart could do at the time was just watch him and still in character. This went on for several minutes until Ledger got close to him. Eckhart felt compelled at this point to fiercely raise his hand up. Immediately, Ledger grabbed Eckhart's raised hand in an equally matched, fierce manner. When the scene was over, Ledger, now out of character, told Eckhart, that's what acting is all about. Which, I mean, if that's not, like, just elevating things to another level, like, Aaron Eckhart's good, and apparently, from what I read, Christopher Nolan saw him in Thank You for Smoking, was like, that's my Harvey Dent. But he's good, but, like, Heath Ledger is great. He looks like he could be Batman, right? Like, he's got the big chin, and he's got the face for it, and the build, and all that, and, you know, the ballerina puts the menu up to his face, and I'm like, yeah, like, like he could pass. That, that's kind of, I wonder if that was a goal, like, you know, let's make him look more like a conventional Batman slash Bruce Wayne would, and he never puts a costume on. So did you read about how they made Two-Face's face for the movie? They would shoot it twice. One, how Harvey Dent would react and act in that situation, and then once how he felt Two-Face would react and act in that situation, and then they mo-capped that and CGI'd it to be that, you know, face, the fucking all fucked up and muscle and shit like that, and then they just merged them together. So you're getting two separate performances, actually, in that same face, which is really fascinating. That's kind of cool. I never really took Nolan to be a very sort of digital CGI sort of enhanced type filmmaker, but that's some subtle shit right there. Like, I actually think they go a little too far with Two-Face's damage, to be honest. Oh, it's unbelievably dumb. <laughs> it's just especially like, dude, we've done such a good job setting up this universe and how grounded it is. And now I can see your jawbone. Like just, you know, if he just had half a Freddy face, I'd have been totally fine with that. When he takes that shot and he spills a little bit of the whiskey on his open, like, masseter muscle, like, real-life Harvey Dent would have curled into the fetal position if that had been real life. Like, holy shit, like, how much pain? Well, I guess maybe at that point there would have been no nerves left, but it's still, like, it's a little over the top and kind of what ties into what I was talking about where deep down this is just a superhero movie and all of those deep things that Nolan was trying to get across just doesn't work when you're coming out of a, a half-skeleton man. I still like him in the movie, though. But yeah, the Two-Face makeup doesn't work for me. Yeah, I think thematically, when it comes to Nolan, everything thematically, he pulls it all off, even if it comes across possibly a little awkward, because it it also fits a certain convention as far as, oh, he's not coming back for the next one, or we're rushing to an ending here. And it's like, yes, it feels like that to a degree, because it is a Hollywood blockbuster film, and we do have a lot to get to. But I also, I accept it because it works so well just as far as this story being told. 
he works really well in that scene where he's gonna shoot the paranoid schizophrenic that he steals from the assassination sequence like that's great like he's killing it there but just as a whole two-face when he's two-faced it, it takes me out of it with how how dopey it looks a lot of the movie is also using him as like a reflection for a lot of different things. Like there's the one line, maybe I'm just picking this line out unfairly, but he asks Alfred about Rachel. Are there any crazy ex-boyfriends I need to know about? And he's like, oh, you have no idea. And it feels like they're like, it's like a, a character moment, like this is Rachel's new guy. And then he's like this, he's the white knight of Gotham or whatever. But it's also like, oh, he's just sort of like this punchline for the audience or for the movie, right? Because it's just like, oh, he doesn't know what we know. It's like this like dramatic irony that Alfred knows and we know, but he doesn't know it's Batman and Bruce Wayne and all this different stuff. And like, it just feels not great. I don't know. Also, a quick question for you guys. When they meet up on that double date, is that the restaurant he bought in the first movie? It feels like that, doesn't it? It does. Yeah, because he says, I own the place, yeah. right? So I assumed, right, yeah. Which is kind of, which I, I, I kind of like that a lot. That's that's pretty cool. So the main thing to talk about with Harvey Dent slash Two-Face, and I guess we can talk about the stuff that he does, his little coin flip murder spree after this and with Gordon. But I think the scene that we have to really focus on here is the pick who you want to save, which Joker definitely tells him the wrong one on purpose, which I fucking love. But does that scene work for you? Because I think that's this one, this movie only really has one other than that ending that you spoke about. Uh, Joy where the music swells because he does that in every movie. But this this movie really only has one time when Nolan really tries to rip that emotion out of you. And it is when Maggie Gyllenhaal is talking to Aaron Eckhart on the radio. Does it work for you? I think there's a, there's a lot of weirdness with the Rachel character. There's a lot of weirdness. Like, apparently, and this is news to me this time around around is that Christopher Nolan wanted to have Katie Holmes back, but she said, no, I'm going to go do this other movie called Med Money. And so he's like, okay, I guess you don't want to be in Dark Knight. I'll recast you. And so Sarah Michelle Gellar and Isla Fisher and Emily Blunt and Rachel McAdams, my love, were all supposed to be auditioned for this role and went to Maggie Gyllenhaal. I feel like it's a weird scene because we care about Rachel from the first movie because she is ostensibly Batman's love interest. And here she kind of is, but we don't really get that like we're just like our emotions for her and batman's emotions for her i mean bruce wayne's emotions whatever for her all really stem from the first movie like there's nothing in this movie that really happens i don't think that says like they should be together there's one it's when he and her are talking at the penthouse before the joker comes in and she says don't i forget her exact wording but it's like don't make me be the thing that like your normal life hinges on Right, don't make me be your one normal thing, yeah. Yeah, like, like, don't make me be the reason you stop being Batman, essentially, is what she says. Which ties into the letter, which I think is the real emotional thing that works in this. But no, that scene does nothing for me. When she dies, I really don't feel a goddamn thing. Like, that's what I'm saying. Like, the fact that it's a new actress, the fact that there's not a lot in this specific movie that builds you up to, like, really care more about Rachel. We don't really know at this point. I mean, we know Harvey, sort of. We know that he's, like, a badass, fearless DA who also was on IA. Like, it's just, we know about him but we don't know him the way that we know, not that we ever would, the way that we know Bruce Wayne or Batman. I feel like there's not really reason in this scene to care about their relationship. And it feels like all the kind of goodwill of the first movie built up with Rachel is not thrown away here, but not built upon here. So when she dies, it doesn't really matter as much as it could. And the fact that like it just turns Harvey evil, the TLDR is that I agree with you. I feel like it could have been more, but I also don't know if any sequence of events without like radically changing the first like hour and a half of the movie would have made that scene better. 
I think she's good. I think she plays Rachel with a really quiet dignity that comes across much better than Katie Holmes's did just because Katie Holmes looks like a baby, whereas Maggie Gyllenhaal looks like someone who's seen some shit, uh, which you would if you were a DA for Gotham. So I like her, and I think she plays that scene really well, and I think she works, but I don't think anything around it works. I think that's one of the movie's failings is that they're focused so much on everything else that that is kind of... They almost kind of fridge her, if that's terminology that... We, we might have to explain that, um, but it's it's close. If she wasn't such a badass beforehand... Yeah, I think it's very close. Wait, they what her? Uh, go ahead, Mikey. You know it, so you take it. I believe it was in a Green Lantern comic. Yeah, he comes home one day and finds his girlfriend stuffed in the fridge, literally killed and stuffed in the fridge, and it's basically like, you, you know, the only motivation for a hero is a dead girlfriend, wife, girl. Oh. And that's all they're good for, yeah. But I, I hear what you said. Like, I liked um, I liked Maggie Gyllenhaal in this a lot, actually. You know, it's like you said, yeah, I, she looks like Rachel's older sister, almost, or something. Or I, I wish she was almost the Rachel in the original. That's This is closer to what I imagine that character being like. She's got a real edge to her, for sure. You got a little fight in you. I like that. I think her death comes across for me more as like a shock. Like, oh, I didn't think they were going to kill her. Like, that's kind of a surprise. They took her off the board. And yes, between this and last movie, I just don't think they had the time and the space to do a better job of building her character. I think they did the best they could. And I think ultimately it's the fallout from her death that for me causes the most sort of emotional impact. So it's like when I see Bruce with his hood off in his penthouse saying Rachel was going to come to me and dump Harvey. And, you know, Alfred's like, let me take that letter back, actually. And I like that Batman doesn't even, like, put up a fight. He's just like, oh, yeah, I trust you, Alfred. Like, I don't, I don't need to read that letter that, like, was clearly says Bruce on the outside. And then it's the scene sort of with Harvey in the hospital. It's weird, but, like, I'm not feeling it when she's actually killed. I'm actually feeling it when they're mourning her. Like, in that mourning phase, like, okay, this is more close to where tears would come. There's a lot of stuff about Harvey Dent in the trivia, and it feels a little contradictory to me. And I'm not sure. Chris was saying, and I don't know if you said on this episode or if I'm just thinking about like what we were talking about before or yesterday, about how you wish that they saved Harvey Dent for the third movie. I think he works here, but I feel like they could have done more with him. And I think he's good, but I think I almost wonder if he feels less than just because he's also in the same movie as the Joker and like what's ever going to compare to that. Like it feels like even if they made the Two Face great, I don't. There's anything he could have done that would have been like taken, you know, that could have helped, like, stood up to the Joker in this movie. But one of the weirdest things that I saw, and this absolutely contradicts what we found out last time, was on Batman Begins. I had read from again, this is all IMDb trivia, so it's all probably bullshit anyway. But we had read that like Christopher Nolan envisioned this as a trilogy. That he was like, this is going to be a three-part trilogy. He's going to have the themes begin in one and pay off in the end and see if that happens or whatever. But there's a note in this one that Christopher Nolan has said apparently that if he knew he was going to make another sequel, Harvey Dent wouldn't have died, which feels strange. Very strange. Yeah. After Batman Begins, it feels like just the uh, the thing to do would be like, okay, we're doing a trilogy. Sign for two more. What doesn't contradict each other is like envisioning a trilogy and then making a first movie. Because if you have an idea for three and like the first one doesn't go well, it doesn't go the way that they want it to, I can see like that doesn't happen. But like if you envision a trilogy and then you make two and this one is like the fastest superhero movie to ever make a billion dollars, like outgrossed the entire Batman Begins in like nine days or whatever, like broke box office record after box office record after, like the fourth movie ever hit a billion dollars 
like all this crazy, like immensely successful, to not think that like you're gonna be able to like, make another. Like it just it just feels strange. Like it just feels like that doesn't track. But again, it could be a lie. It could be just nonsense. But it just feels like how would it have shaken out if he didn't die? We'll never know. And I think that's part of the magic of this movie is that there's just so much unknown surrounding it and surrounding what could have been in a third movie, especially with what we got and what could have been with Heath Ledger as an actor in general and just what could have been with that character that is probably the best villain in film history. Oh, I was saying more about what would happen if Harvey Dent didn't die. Oh, well, I mean, even that, like any of that, the whole movie itself has just this this mythology around it that is ripe for the IMDb Tribune, but is, is really, it's just nerd conjecture. Yeah. If things didn't happen the way they were, we're going to go in Bane oh, That was about as intelligible as Bane actually is in the third one, so that was, that was a very good impression, Mike. Oh, you're welcome. That's what I was going for. So a couple things, Aaron Eckhart said he modeled his performance after Robert F. Kennedy, both in his initial polished, dashing appearance, and also his preoccupation with revenge, which I'm sure if I knew Robert F. Kennedy more, maybe if I'd watched Bobby starring Shia LaBeouf a few more times, Mike, I would have been able to pick up on that, number one. Oh, I just would have wanted more of an accent from him if he was doing a Kennedy. I guess. It's Chowder, not Chowder. But the other thing was that Matt Damon was offered that role. Uh, Whoa. Okay. Well, that's a Nolan regular, at least. Well, it would have been, I guess. Yeah, and had to turn it down because of Invictus. And what's weird about this, this is a little bit of circular logic or something, is that Invictus was directed by Clint Eastwood, who was considered to play Harvey Dent in the Batman 66 TV series. So this like weird world that almost was two faces went off and made their own Invictus movie. So that was kind of strange. Yeah, I think uh, Harlan Ellison actually wrote an episode for 66 Batman starring Two-Face that never aired, but it was turned into a comic book. So it's out there somewhere. I know he wasn't in Dark Knight a lot, but am I racist or was Morgan Freeman in Invictus? He was. Okay. Yeah, that's what I thought. Okay. I think it was just conflict. There must have been like overlap or I, I don't know what, but also Morgan Freeman's not in this movie a ton. Yeah, I was kind of surprised. Yeah, because Morgan Freeman basically has God's eye from Fate of the Furious and like that's all he does in this movie. Yeah, that's like the only super timely, I felt, reference where, well, I mean, a lot of this is a comment on society, but that was a direct comment on the day we lived in, you know, with the surveillance going amok under Bush 2 and everything like that. I, mean, I was just really surprised that he included that, but it made so much sense to talk about it because of the whole sonar aspect of bats and everything. It's just like, you couldn't not do that. I guess this is probably where I should tie in that thing that I said in the Batman Begins episode, how I think I'm going to have a an extended strand about the politics of this trilogy. Watching 2 and 3 has made me realize that I absolutely will not, because kind of like what I was saying before, where Nolan doesn't really tie his themes into anything, and also the weight of these, by and large, just being adolescent fantasies weighs everything down. Nolan really does appear to take a lot of, in 2 and 3, political symbolism, and just kind of throw it in the movie, because it's relevant, but not really do anything with it or say anything about it. We get... A an enhanced interrogation sequence here. We get basically Batman's Patriot Act, which he uses and then immediately destroys because he knows it's evil. And we get what is really clear, and this came out in mid-2008, but as we've learned, uh, elections take a really long fucking time in America. I would not be shocked if some of the symbolism of Harvey Dent was slightly modeled, especially in the ARG, because I want to talk about this. There was a major ARG going on with this movie in the build-up to it. There's some very Obama-esque symbolism with Harvey Dent as well throughout this movie and especially in the art with the I believe in Harvey Dent kind of stuff. Hope, that, that fucking uh, Shepard Fairy Hope 
Obama thing. Like, you could have had just Harvey Dent in that and not changed anything else and still had that fit in this movie. And in Dark Knight Rises, we'll talk about the Occupy symbolism and stuff like that. But he just kind of smashes in, like, political stuff and then drops the threads, which is also a huge disappointment of rewatching 2 and 3 for me now. Yeah, I wonder if part of that might just be his nationality, you know, because he is American, but he wasn't, he didn't spend his entire childhood and teen years in America exactly. So it's interesting how he's tied to the country, but yet kind of sees it with just a different, a different gaze, I guess, you know? And yeah, it's just, yeah. it's just boring, honestly. He, he's, he's an apolitical director, which it, it's why he, you know, he has to pull from emotion. And I think that's, we were talking about how some in the previous episode, how some people might not really like Nolan and how that's understandable in a lot of ways. And I think that might be one of them is there's not, there's not a lot in regards to subtext that's not said in some of those fortune cookie lines throughout these movies. It's, there's just not a lot of depth to a Nolan film. Emotional depth, sure, but not a lot of like, you can't really do a deep read of The Dark Knight and have it work in the long term. You know what's strange? Comparing Harvey Dent to Obama is interesting in that Billy D. Williams played Harvey Dent in oh, the yes. original Batman movie, so to make him a white guy as like the next symbol of hope is sort of, is that weirdly racist on like, or like, is that racist on like the filmmaker, like on Christopher Nolan's part, or is that just like his like lack of politicizing, you know what I mean? Like the no, I think it's just a coincidence, partially, like, because Billy D came back to play Two-Face in Lego Batman, actually, so... Oh, that's awesome. I think it's racist on Joel Schumacher. <laughs> <laughs> For not having him back. Yeah. I'm not a very political person. I just sort of, you know, try to keep my head free of the of the swamp, if you will, um, that is being drained as we speak. But I, so I, don't, I don't read film like that. But to think of, you know, Harvey Dent as Obama makes sense. It's just weird that you now have a white guy. I mean, it is all sort of the the white knight, and then you have Batman as the dark knight and whatever, but yeah. still, whatever. And there's also, wasn't there a boxing film, The Great White Hope, as well? And so that sort of may have been, they may be playing on that a little bit, too, where it's just sort of like the underdog horse that comes in at the last minute and is sort of like takes the lead from behind and ends up running the show, but in this case, ends up with a game leg and losing the race. <laughs> Well, he also ended up being, much like Obama, uh, no one accidentally predicted that he ended up kind of being a neoliberal do-nothing who gave the next villain in line all of the tools to do horrible, horrible things to the world, so... <laughs> Cleared the path. <laughs> yeah. Don't at me, bitch. A couple things about Harvey Dent. Ryan Phillippe was considered for the part. Also, of note from the last movie we just talked about, Hugh Jackman considered for the role of Harvey Dent. I like that. Yeah, I just think he's too Wolverine at this point, right? He can't be anything else. Also, consider under consideration for the role of Harvey Dent were Mark Ruffalo, I guess, pre-Hulk, Liev Schreiber, and Josh Lucas. I don't know who the last one is. I like Liev Schreiber. I like Liev Schreiber. And then I guess, oh, these are also just uh, just because they're all together in my notes. People for the Joker. Do you remember any other people who uh, people wanted for the Joker who were rumored for the Joker? Crispin Glover? No, that would have been good, though. Oh, Crispin Glover Joker. Is it too late to recast Joaquin as Crispin Glover <laughs> nowadays? No, that would have been good, though. I know Joaquin's going to be great. Great. I, I kid, I kid. Do another one. Joseph Gordon-Levitt? No, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I think, was in here. Is he? Uh, no, I don't know. Maybe, I, thought, I thought I saw his name, but no. Paul Bettany, another guy from, I think, I like wasn't him. he also in A Knight's Tale? Lackey Holm? I don't know if this is. Adrian Brody, Steve Carell, and Robin Williams also, they wanted to play the Joker. Wait, Adrian Brody. Yeah, I like Adrian Brody. I kind of like Steve Carell, but I don't. And Robin Williams, we've, we talked about Insomnia, how his dream, his dream role was the Riddler, and Christopher Nolan dashed that, and um, Christopher Nolan actually killed Robin Williams, just FYI. Maybe. But I do like that they had a conversation, possibly, like yeah. somewhere along the line, about Batman in general. 
also considered for the part were Willem Dafoe and Jeffrey Rush. But the finalists, and these are of particular note, I think, to you and me, Mike, at least, were Heath Ledger, of course, uh, Hugo Weaving, so shout out to Keanu Club, and Sam Rockwell. Oh, I still want that. Yeah. Let's see, like, because DC, they should just make Joker movies and just let yep. anybody, like, just everybody should just do their Joker. Okay. Just get the Joker on I'm now. Gonna... Just make it the Joker universe. I want to put this out there, okay? Jared Leto's Joker is not bad from a Jared Leto acting perspective. Jared Leto's Joker is terrible because he's a fucking... He's fucking Takeshi 6ix9ine Joker and the aesthetic of him is repulsive. <laughs> He's Die Antwerp Joker. It's... It's just ugly. The only reason I think I like him is because of the movie he's in. Like, he's definitely the most interesting thing happening in that movie. Mike and I have talked about that Joker on probably a dozen different podcasts right now. I think he's the best part of Suicide Squad. I think if that movie was about Joker and Harley, I would have really liked that movie. I think as maybe misguided as it might have been, I believe Jared Leto saying that, like, he thought the movie was mostly a Joker movie and then, you know, they signed Will Smith and all of a sudden it's like a Suicide Squad Deadshot movie and not really a Joker movie. Like, I think... He is, I mean, I don't love him the way that I love Heath Ledger in this movie, but I think that he was a good, interesting Joker. But I agree with Mike. I think we've also talked about this on other podcasts, too, that, like, just make a bunch of Joker movies. Just let everybody be the Joker. Let's just see, like, what wins out. Because people love the Joker. People love the Joker. I believe that Suicide Squad probably was taken away from the director and in, in that regards from Jared Leto as well, because that is one of the single worst edited movies I have ever seen in my life. That movie feels like it was just hacked at the knee. I don't think it would have been a good movie, but I think it would have been at least a slightly sensical movie. Yeah. So real quick, I want to ask you guys. Um, so I've been posting on the same message board since like 2001. So for more than half of my life, I've been posting on this one forums. And two nights ago, I went through the archives and I went to 2008 in the movie forum and I was trying to find Dark Knight stuff because I was interested and when I did find it it was just kind of nerds fucking coming their pants and putting it number third on IMDb but I also found I found a thread that started a year before this movie came out with the ARG that came out before this movie and I don't know if you guys remember this but I do have a very distinct memory of this can you explain what an alternate reality game is please yeah Cloverfield was probably the first movie to really do this Lost did stuff like this it's basically you see it every year at Comic Con now it is an alternate reality game. It is something that uses multiple media, so like internet, real life interactions, maybe like actual props, but basically it gives you, it gives people a way to play something in that universe. It's a multimedia scavenger hunt. Yeah. In this universe, you got Gotham Times articles and you can find codes in that. And when people figured it out, they solved stuff. And that actually led people to real world sites, actual bakeries, where they sent, uh, they asked people, I guess, who ran those bakeries to have cakes on hold that said stuff. And they would give it to the person who came in and said the right thing. And once all of the codes on those cakes were put together via the internet, everyone working from all different parts of America, that led to a new website, which revealed the first picture of the Joker, which is just a very close up of Heath Ledger with the scars. And that reading the forum, everyone was like, Heath Ledger, what is this going to be? Brokeback Batman? To people being like, holy shit, he looks really good. It was really fun to relive kind of the speculation like, oh, how does Joker get, get those scars? Is he going to fall into a, a pit of chemicals? What's Two-Face going to be? Is he going to even be in this movie? I heard they're going to cast the Riddler. I heard Anthony Michael Hall is the Riddler. And it was just really fun to kind of relive that whole thing. And then really tragic to get to January and have everyone be like, oh, Heath Ledger's dead. This is really brutal. Something that was funny, kind of funny, quote unquote funny, and 
knowing what happens and who's cast in Dark Knight Rises, people were like, are they going to recast him? Who could they recast? Uh, I think Joseph Gordon-Levitt would be really good as the Joker. Just things like that. This was one of the earliest movies to do one this long and this in-depth. I very specifically remember the I Believe in Harvey Dent, which is a throwaway line in the movie, a major website and a big part, like his whole campaign, which really mirrored the Obama thing, as I mentioned, because that was happening right at this time, was a major thing online and had a lot of hints at the at what was going to happen in the movie and like kind of leaks at the trailer and, and I think a movie poster was revealed in that way. None of those websites are up, unfortunately, anymore. I, I looked for them. I clicked a lot of those links. But it, this was massive. They did switch yeah. a lot of that from being... There was a moment where you could um you could become one of the clowns in Joker's gang. And oh. you could get a phone uh-huh. call that said some stuff. Around February, they switched that to being the Gotham PD took it over and was like, oh, hey, we know what you're trying to do. You're working for us now or you're going to jail, which I guess is a pretty, a pretty good way of flipping that after your main star passed away. So, yeah, there was some really cool stuff that this movie did. So when we're talking about why this movie blew up the way it did, I don't don't think we can discredit clearly the internet fucking jizzes their pants over this movie on the regular even today 10 years later you can't discredit how integral how extra i guess that was in in kind of adding some hype to this movie because it was an entire year of game that just leaked out these little trailers and these pictures and these stills and these ideas uh, at comic cons and on websites and throughout america before this came out and there was so much hype and discussion behind this it really was a moment it really brought me back because that was 2008 we were just getting we were about to get our own Harvey Dent and the world was a much more innocent place and I was about to graduate from college and it really did bring me back in this really interesting now and again podcast-esque kind of way. I had some feelings and um, I I forgot there was even an ARG and I I just thought it was worth bringing up because it was really, really cool to relive that through message boards. That's interesting. I didn't know that there was one, but I remember when we were doing Memento that the website was on the DVD and that was super elaborate for back then and which was, what, 2001? So Chris, I don't know if your message board has anything about the Memento movie website or anything, but it's really cool to know that Nolan embraced that, that he saw the internet as a tool for exposure and that, yeah, that people would actually want that. And that's really, that's really cool. I, I was not aware of it, but um, I'm glad that it exists. One thing completely unrelated to what we were just talking about, but I just have bolded in my notes that I want to say while we were still sort of talking about the Joker before. We talked a lot about in the last Batman episode about the score. We talked a little bit about it here. One thing I think is really, really cool is that Han Zimmer, when doing his musical score for like Joker parts, would play piano wires with like razor blades and guitar with shreds of metal and just make these like really like crazy, tinny, weird noises, which I think is just super cool. Yeah, yeah. This whole movie has a real sense of urgency to it. Like, I know it's cut pretty quickly but just the music, it's even more so than the last movie. It's just a lot of like, um, the beat or just like a momentum throughout this entire film that just feels constant. It's really cool. Like, because I mean, then when it does slow down, it doesn't feel slow. It just feels normal paced. And then I feel like we're back into it again. So can we talk about how or whether this movie changed the Academy Awards? In what manner? Because I was not aware that this movie did anything for the Academy Awards. Is this when they expanded to 10 or like whatever, how many movies? I didn't know that. Yes. Oh, okay. Uh, there was rumors, I mean, there's no there's no concrete way, but between this and Wally, which were two critically acclaimed, very beloved movies, neither got nominated for Best Picture. Not saying that either should have, but there was talk that they could have, and the fact that neither did prompted people to think that the next year when they expanded to 10, that it was supposed to be for more like popcorn, entertaining, fair, stuff that isn't traditionally Academy Award-based. I mean, this, this movie did win a lot of awards, like Heath Ledger obviously won for Best Supporting Actor, it won Best Sound Editing, 
winning. It was nominated for Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, Best Art Direction, Best Makeup, Best Sound Mixing, Best Visual Effects. Like, it was nominated for a bunch of stuff. The interesting thing is that because like there's there's like weird specific little things like it was the only film that year to be nominated for best editing but not best picture and it almost felt like looking back I don't know what else was nominated that year but like it almost feels like the Academy didn't want like have like a superhero movie even quote unquote the best superhero movie be nominated for best picture you know what I mean like it feels like they're like we'll give it the technical awards we'll we'll recognize Heath Ledger because he died and we want to praise ourselves for being so liberal with our choices or whatever but it feels like they didn't want to give it like the actual like big things that maybe shouldn't have deserved but could have deserved and then they go and change the landscape afterwards because of it but don't and then they don't have to include it either so they can have their cake and eat it too it's a very Oscars year, honestly. What is it now? Don't they fluctuate Best Picture nominees? Or is it always 10 now? I... It's up to 10. Oh, up to 10. Yeah. So it could be 5? It could be 5. Here's the Best Pictures of that year. The Reader. That's that's a classic Academy pick. Kate Winslet won the Oscar for finally playing the Nazi, as Ricky Gervais predicted. Milk? Eh, uh, I have opinions on... Harvey Dent or Harvey Milk? Well, if we want to roll back to that, Sean Penn did win Best Actor, but uh, robbed the absolute fuck out of Mickey Rourke and The Wrestler. Frost Nixon, come on. The Curious Case of Benjamin Button, which I recently finally watched for the first time, and that movie is not as much of a punchline as people make it out to be. No, I like that movie in theaters. I haven't seen it uh, since, there's like, but... There's like a middle 40 of that movie that's absolutely fantastic. And your winner, which, you know, look, look, three years earlier, okay, Crash won Best Picture, so I don't even consider Slumdog Millionaire to be in the same category as that, but Slumdog Millionaire won that year. But look, of those five movies, if you expand that to seven movies even, you're probably looking at The rest Wrestler and Dark Knight, and then Wally probably on the bubble. Oh, also this movie Doubt that had like 17 acting awards, but no actual awards. That's PSH as like a molesting priest, question mark? Also, while we're on the topic of the Academy Awards, uh, this was the fourth time that a film based on a comic was nominated for Best Actor Supporting Role, but the first time it won. Can any of you guess, and two of these I didn't know were based on a comic, can either of you guess what the other nominees were for Best Supporting Actor in a comic book movie? Ed Harris for History of Violence? Right movie, wrong person. Uh, uh, no, uh, Vigo. Nope. Neither of those. William Hurt for History of Violence. William Hurt. I'm oh, sorry. It looks, I thought it was... Okay, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah, okay. That makes some sense. There was an, another person who was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for a comic movie. Two other people were nominated for a film based on a comic. One, clearly a comic. One, I did not know was a comic. So another comic movie where someone was up for Best Supporting Actor. One movie was from 2002, and one movie was from 1990. No one was up for Road to Perdition, were they? Yep. Oh, okay. Paul Newman for Road to Perdition. Ah, okay. Paul Newman's gonna have my legs broke. That's an interesting one, because that's based on Lone Wolf and Cub, which is a manga. It's it's surprisingly decent. Um, it doesn't feel anything like that, but it's it's not bad. I I've recently, I saw that maybe about two years ago. It's it's pretty good. Anybody name? It's the biggest actor on this list, probably. I mean, even bigger than Paul Newman. What year was this? 1990. 1990 and a comic. And this is one of the ones that you said you didn't even realize was based on a comic book? And this is the one that's very clearly based on, like, comics. Oh, Driving Miss Daisy. Nope. <laughs> Al Pacino and Dick Tracy. Oh, oh my wow, God. He was not. Something was nominated for that? That's what this says. <laughs> That's wild. Okay, so who, so who did Heath Ledger beat out that year? Okay, interesting year. PSH in doubt. We talked about that, which is probably the winner if he is alive or not nominated. Josh Brolin in Milk. Eh. Michael Shannon in Revolutionary Road. Okay. Eh. This one is an interesting nomination. Robert Downey Jr. Want to guess the movie? 2008. He's in b -b -b Blackface. 
Oh, Tropic oh, Thunder. Okay. Tropic Thunder. That movie is yeah. not very good, and he's not very good in it. That movie at least acknowledges he's in blackface, and that is stupid. Yeah. But uh, that movie's not good for a lot of reasons. Also, let's still acknowledge the fact that Mickey Rourke should have won Best Actor that year. Uh, Heath Ledger won 32 Best Supporting Actor awards, including the Oscar, Golden Globe, BAFTA, SAG, and Critics' Choice. He was also nominated for Satellite Award, which went to Michael Shannon, the London Film Critics' Circle Award for Actor of the Year, which went to Mickey Rourke for The Wrestler. Michael Shannon and Mickey Rourke would later go on to play comic book villains of their own, Shannon as General Zod and Rourke as Ivan Vanko in Iron Man 2. You've definitely got, just looking at this awards list, you've got some interesting Batnections. Sure, Batnections. Anne Hathaway, nominated for Best Actress for Rachel Getting Married. Best Documentary, Man on Wire, which later Christopher Nolan alumni would go on to play in the fictional version of. You've got Mickey Rourke here. Frank Langella, who has played a comic book villain in the past, was nominated for Frost Nixon. Oh, right, he was Skeletor. Did you say Skeletor? Is that what you said? (laughs) You just jogged my memory. Oh, my God. Yeah, 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 that's what I was referring to. And he was also uh, Perry White in Superman Returns, so... There you go. Marissa Tomei, who is now Aunt May. Amy Adams, who is now Lois Lane. At this point, though, there's been so many comic book movies. It's six degrees of fucking Stanley. Yeah, this is another one of those Joey and I's had this conversation quite a quite a lot on podcasts. Like, it's going to get to a point where everyone in the movie was in the MCU or the DCU or some kind of comic movie. You want to hear the probably the biggest blowout in Oscars history here? Best animated feature film. Wally, which one was up against Bolt and Kung Fu Panda? Ooh, I got Bolt for free when I got my 3D TV, and I never watched it. I sold it. It was worth a watch. John Travolta is not bad as Bolt. It's an interesting story. It's about a stunt dog who doesn't know he's a stunt dog and gets lost from the studio and has to reconcile the idea that he doesn't have any superpowers, that it was all just fiction. Honestly, a twenty it's like a 20-minute podcast where we look at the Oscars winners list and just shit on it would be pretty solid if you ever need some content. So Walt Hickey, who was on our – this is for you, but also for our listeners, if anybody's made it this far. And Walt Hickey, who was on our 211 episode of Cage Club, who used to write for 538 and now has his own newsletter at Numlock News. His partner has a podcast called Not Her Again, where the two of them or he and his friends or whatever go through Meryl Streep's filmography and look at years where she didn't win the Oscar. And then I guess just watch those movies and talk about those movies. So it's essentially yours, probably as snarky, but like – it's probably, probably your idea, basically. Just, you know, they're they're centering around Meryl Streep as opposed to just, like, shitting on the Oscars every year. Oh, here's another quick Batnection. In the In Memoriam section, RIP that year, Pat Hingle, former Commissioner Gordon, who uh, apparently died that year. Anyway, yeah, let's get away from this. But it is interesting to see if your thesis is this changed the Oscars. Looking at it and then looking at the next year, I could completely, completely see. I mean, just, just knowing that they changed to 10 pictures and how much that has changed this going forward, you're going to get a lot of Nolan movies that are nominated going forward. I believe both Inception and Dunkirk. I'm not even sure about Interstellar. I don't think so. But I know Inception and Dunkirk will both be nominated for Best Picture down the line. I mean, just looking at the next year, how much more weird shit is in there? You've got The Hurt Locker, which won. Avatar, The Blind Side. District 9, which definitely is not in there most years. And Education, Inglorious Bastards, Precious, based on the novel Push by Sapphire. FYI, you are legally obligated to say that entire title. A Serious Man, Up, and what should have won that year? Up in the Air. So, I mean, that's a lot of... Spreading that out to 10 is pretty solid. Not that award shows matter. Fuck them all. Light them on fire. Speaking of burning down things like the Academy Awards, there is the great line that Alfred says where where he's talking about like that thief in Burma. 
Bruce asks the Ben and Berman, did you catch me? He says, yes. He says, how? He says, we burned the forest down. Like, basically, to catch the Joker, you need to, like, destroy Gotham, which doesn't really, like, that doesn't seem great, but... I've got to burn it down, Master Bruce. Some people just want to watch the world burn. I won't burn another Batman. Man, this this was this was great. This movie, I mean, we we didn't go too deep into what doesn't work. I mean, real quick, what what doesn't work for you? For me, it's the entire Mr. Reese plot. I think it should have been cut. Oh, uh, what about Mr. Lau? Also, that probably that probably takes a little bit too long, and they want that seems like a little wanky that they just wanted to film a jump in in Beijing or wherever they did it, Hong Kong. Yeah, part of it feels like, hey, look how good we're getting with IMAX cameras. Part of it feels like, oh, we've got a lot more Chinese investors, so we have to shoot in China and have a big Chinese sequence. But ultimately, I fucking love it. It's just like so Batman. And I know Christopher Nolan's getting a lot of his James Bond rocks off in this sequence, too, because he did the sky hook. Like, James Bond has done that before. This sequence is Nolan living out like a 007 fantasy in the middle of a Batman movie, and I fucking love it. And I just love that Batman has no jurisdiction too like that's never really been tackled before on screen and yeah batman can go to china grab a criminal bring him back to gotham so that he could be um thrown into jail there and i i really enjoy that stuff i i see like yes you could simplify it cut it down make it all take place in gotham but i don't want any less of it i actually really love it when I sort of criticize that or, or question that, it's not like I'm trying to criticize that sequence because that sequence is great. Even though I think the setup of it where, you know, he's like, how do I get back on a plane? And, and Lucius and Morgan Freeman's like, I just recommend a really good travel agent. He's like, well, without landings, like, there we go. And like that, like the setup is cool. Like Michael Caine over there is cool. Like Batman actually getting him is cool. That's all great. I just think the Lau character feels like they're like, we need connective tissue between all of this. And he's just sort of like, it feels like he's got his fingers in so many pies. Like everything that everybody's involved with, Lau is also there, which either is convenience or they're actually a lot more closely connected than I'm giving it credit for. But it just feels like he's sort of tangentially related to like everything that's going on. I mean, he kind of is like, he's just, he's hiding the mafia's money. And then so whoever has Lau basically has control of the mob so when he's in prison the cops have him and he's going to play ball with them so the Joker needs to go kidnap him and then kill him so that he doesn't turn evidence against the mafia and then Joker just goes ahead and burns all the money anyway so that he just obliterates the playing field and it's his rules only but so I don't know I, I like the loud character as sort of just another human villain he's not part of the mafia he's just this businessman who's ultra corrupt and uh, sort of like a Jordan Belfoy or something like that I saw him as like just someone who wants to like move around a lot of money and make a lot of money at the same time and this is also if i'm not mistaken before that like really cynical trend that we're getting today where it's like oh hey china likes movies now and they're allowed to see them and they have a lot of money so let's just put tony stark in front of a chinese flag for half a second and then we'll make an extra 50 million dollars it's at least not done for a really gross cynical reason like it is today for him to just pop over in china so at, at the very least i can give it that but i still feel like they could have just done this in gotham and probably saved themselves a lot of money and also saved maybe just you know you save a minute here and a minute there and then five minutes from taking out mr reese and you've got a movie that feels a lot tighter in its last act which is to me where it kind of uh just it kind of crawls across the finish line in a lot of ways to me Although, if you get rid of Mr. Reese, you then get rid of what might be the best line in the movie, is you think your client, one of the wealthiest, most influential men in the world, is secretly a vigilante who spends his nights beating criminals to a pulp with his bare hands, and your plan is to blackmail this person? Good luck. 
Yeah, that is true. And I also like where uh, Gordon's like, that was a very brave thing you did. And he was like, what, trying to beat the light? That is that is pretty good. And I do wish we had in any Batman movie, I mentioned this on the last one in reference to 89 as well, more Bruce Wayne being Bruce Wayne. We kind of get that with the ballerinas on the boat here. But yeah, it's just, it's another example of Nolan driving a theme into the ground instead of just having one really good way of delivering it. He's like, hey, here's another thing with identity. He knows his identity, but but he's going to give it away, but he's going to keep it a secret. It's just like, all right, it doesn't matter. We don't care. Chris, do you have any other thoughts about The Dark Knight before we wrap up and go to Inception next week? It's good. I really think that you can draw the line specifically here between what happened with comic movies after the Nolan trilogy and now. Like, there's such a disparity. Like, it kind of found fun again, as Mike referenced fucking seven hours ago when we started this episode. We're back to fun again. And I don't think the Nolan movies lost their sense of fun. I think they never intended to have it. I think movies right after this all thought they needed to be a little grimdark, except for maybe like Iron Man because of who Tony Stark was as a character. But you're looking at like Man of Steel and the first try of Thor and the second try of Hulk. It it takes a while. This does, while this does elevate comic movies for a long time, kind of what I was saying before, you can't elevate comic movies too much because all of them are essentially about really stupid things. It's going to take some time for comic movies to find their footing again because you just can't do what Chris Nolan is doing a lot. And even though I didn't love this movie like a lot of people do, I think the big takeaway from this movie, other than Heath Ledger was a a generational talent, is that you just can't do what Nolan does sometimes. I know we've been jerking him off this whole podcast. That's what we're doing. There's not a bad movie in this bunch, but... He, he's just on a different level. He, he sees things in a different way, and he gets material. Even if it doesn't click, even if it does not work, and I don't think this works in a lot of ways, he still elevates material, and that is impressive in and of itself. And I think that's a good connection from Steven Soderbergh to here, Mike, is that like even when Soderbergh's movies don't click, you can see that there's like a purpose and there's a reason there's like a dedication to the craft there. And even though I would rather rewatch following a dozen times before I rewatch Full Frontal for sure, I think that Christopher Nolan is, in terms of the movies that he's making, they're more accessible. And even when they don't work in all the ways, they feel a little bit long or things are a little bit tangentially unresolved, like Scarlett Johansson, Where Does She Go in The Prestige or just things we were talking about here tonight. There's just this crazy craftsmanship and this artistry and just like Soderbergh was great in everything he did there for the most part Chris Reynolds again here they're just there's a handful of people the people that we're going to cover on this podcast as time goes on that we just want to bring attention to like there's a reason we're talking about these movies and we've said it before we just like these movies they're good movies we want to talk about these movies Soderbergh made a bunch of really good stuff and Nolan makes a bunch of really good stuff and I'm just glad to be doing this here real quick sorry one more thing before we move on to me I'm gonna snipe this from you really fucking impressive that they flipped an entire semi-truck in the middle of Chicago and it's practical except for them CGIing out the thing that flipped it. That's the only CGI in that scene. Really fucking impressive practical effects in this movie. Yay for not just CGIing that shit because it could have been real easy to do. Yeah, and uh, they blew up an actual hospital in this movie too so that was really cool to be able to do that. I read that was an old candy factory. Oh, okay. Well, they blew up an actual building. That's an actual explosion so that's great. Yeah, you know, I love Batman and I love that there are great Batman movies. I think it's very telling though that people refer to this as Christopher Nolan's Batman because yes he's the only one that can pull this off like that's the whole point of it and I think that's the point a lot of filmmakers are missing after the fact is like let's do what he did because what he did was successful whereas they were afraid to be themselves it took 10 years and 20 Marvel movies to get to Infinity War where we have a balance where there's actual okay there's a lot of grim stuff here but there's also a lot of 
joy here too and marvel universe yeah like sort of reconfiguring what it all means again but this left a seismic shift in the industry there's no doubt about it i mean even beyond superhero movies too like we mentioned i think with batman begins how like it sort of started to bleed in a bit to james bond the rebooting of all that and just making him more grounded and more realistic and less quippy and jokey like the sean connery or even the roger moore stuff i mean i'm just really thankful for this movie i mean as a batman fan as a christopher nolan fan as a comic book movie fan and i'm just constantly impressed over and over again every time i watch this that it still holds up and i can still find you know different corners of this movie to appreciate every time i watch it and yeah it's just a really great time and i've just been having a lot of fun with you guys talking about not just nolan but the joker for a freaking hour and then you know and it's basically the joker cast but yeah it's just been a lot of fun i'm, I'm just really glad that, th- that we're doing this well, we still have almost half of this podcast run to go. We've got four movies left. We've got Inception, we've got Dark Knight Rises, we've got Interstellar, and we've got Dunkirk. So four more really good movies to go, and I'm excited to talk about those. But for all things Christopher Nolan, all things Cinemakers, all things Soderbergh, everything we've talked about today, Chris's podcast, now and again, Mike's podcast, Third Time's a Charm, my way too many podcasts, go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. This episode won't be out by the time we finish recording, but email us. Let us know what you think. If you made it here, at the end, I will mail you a Cage Club sticker for sticking around to the end. Email cinemakers at cageclub.me. Say hi. Let us know what you thought of The Dark Knight, of Batman, of Christopher Nolan, Heath Ledger, Aaron Eckhart, Two-Face, of whatever we talked about, of the Joker cast. Cageclub.me, Facebook.com slash cageclub, at cageclubpod, on Twitter and Instagram, cinemakers at cageclub.me. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm just a guy who wants to watch the world burn. And we'll see you next time for Inception on Cinemakers. Cinemakers.